Well, we turn now to Luke chapter 2, the birth of Christ. You can find this in your pew Bibles on page 857. And the story that's been unfolding is we've had some interruptions with travel and holidays and different things. But the story unfolding in the beginning of of Luke's gospel is of uh, two contrasting images. The birth of John and the birth of Jesus. And this contrast is presented to us to show that Christ is preeminent. Christ is the one who is at the heart of the gospel. And uh, we see this morning two things. We see the historical fact of the birth of Christ very much set in the context of world history. But then we see the, the angelic announcement of its meaning and significance. And these two things go hand in hand. Children, adults, I want you to pay attention to three words that are repeated here for emphasis by Luke. The first is registration. Uh, The second is David, three times. And the third is manger. These three words, registration, David, and manger, will be themes that Luke will want to focus our attention upon. This is God's holy word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, he was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in our prayer for illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. 
Please be seated. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Um, I think of the fact that we only have this text before us today because Luke, the historian, probably heard this story from Mary. Um, my wife has been wanting to clean out our attic. We're, we moved into our home 18 years ago, and uh, we have 18 years of garbage up in our attic. And finally this week, I did my duty as a husband and, and helped her empty our attic and gradually put all things back up. And among the, the, the things stored up in our attic, uh, treasured as it were, uh, was uh, a handwritten uh, recollection of, of my freshman year batting average in high school. I would record my at-bats and uh, my hits and my stolen bases. It's, it's not a really pretty record, but uh, as, as a 13-year-old boy, I treasured my, my batting average. And uh, I get to look back now and see what a foolish boy I was. Um, and a foolish man. Our, our attics are full of many things we treasure. But Mary spent all these years, and, and probably 10 or 20 years after her son had died, a brutal death, and was able to share with Luke this good news that she heard on a night many, many years before. And uh, there is... In Luke's presentation here, I think a lot for us to see that sometimes maybe gets uh, lost in, in, in the familiarity of Christmas. We've heard the story so often, but also in the other uh, accoutrements of, of, of the Christmas story. But really, Luke is, is, is focusing our attention in a, in a pretty profound way here on introducing the gospel to us, the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's uh, the source of our, our title here. Christ turns our fear to joy. We see this, this movement, right? The, the shepherds have a great fear, and then they hear good news about great joy. And we can have joy in Christ. That's the gospel. The shepherds preach the gospel. That's the verb used here. They preach the gospel. Rather, the angels preach the gospel to the shepherds. And the way this flows in Luke's telling is that there's this profound fact of history that then has significance for us as we hear this good news and believe. And so my first point in our outline is that the king of heaven, the great glorious king of all creation, is laid in a humble circumstance in a manger. And there are three subpoints to this historical data point, this fact upon which the gospel is laid. And I, I mentioned them to you, uh, registration, David, and the manger. So first, registration. This is the historical context. It's repeated four times in Luke's account. Sometimes I think King James might have taxation. Right? It's strange that, that the good news of Jesus Christ starts with paying your taxes. Clearly, this is a detail that he wants us to register, to take note of. And it seems rather mundane, but that's the point. Uh, those children who study Latin know mundus, the world. It's mundane because it, God comes into our world. And he begins acting like one of the billions of humans who have been born. He is one of billions and billions of humans who have been born in the history of our planet. And there are some key historical details provided by Luke. Remember, he's presenting an orderly account, a narrative. 
The first is a, a decree of registration or taxation that went out from Caesar Augustus. Uh, this word for a decree means that it was, it was probably an act passed by the Roman Senate. Now, Augustus is, is the first of the leaders of Rome known as an emperor from AD or BC 27 to AD 14, 41 years. He's of massive significance, and he's known for, for bringing the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, to the known world, to the Mediterranean world. It's telling and significant. There's a contrast here, which we'll want to explore, between Caesar Augustus, who claimed, in some inscriptions we know, claimed to be the savior of the world, claimed to be divine, and the birth of Jesus Christ. The second fact is, is this idea of the registration of Quirinius when he was governor of Syria. We know of this Quirinius from the history books, just like we know of Caesar Augustus. And now, this has caused some controversy, and we'll get to this in just a moment, um, along with the matter of, of registration. We know of various events of, of taxation. And some people have used these historical details... To say that Luke is not a reliable historian. They've tried to uh, line up this account with the account that we have from the records of these people in human history. And Luke, it's important to see, is, is committed to the historian's task. He's put himself on the hook. If you're writing a newspaper article in the Washington Post or the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and you say such and such happened on a certain date, well then you can be fact-checked. You can be proved wrong. And people have tried to do this for, for hundreds of years by Luke. And you won't be surprised to hear that very, very many people think that Luke's account is faulty. That there are problems here. Some people think it conflicts with Matthew's account. Who seems to portray uh, Mary and Joseph living in Bethlehem instead of visiting for the purpose of taxation. Now, we don't have time in the context of a sermon to go into detail. I'm happy uh, to share with you all um, pages from uh, reliable biblical commentaries that answer some of these objections and concerns. But I think the first thing that we need to notice is that the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news for all people, is that there is a historical truth that a Savior was born on this day. So the Christian gospel is committed to the scandal of particularity. The Christian gospel can be disproved. If Jesus was not born... To paraphrase the Apostle Paul, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we of all men are most to be pitied. Your faith is futile, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. You are still in your sins. The gospel isn't some philosophy. It's not some rule of living. It's not a special diet or something that makes life in the world redeemable. It's not a transcendental meditation. It's a man being born to deliver you from sin and death. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. If he's just a life coach. We are of all people most to be pitied. Now there's more than one way to reconcile Luke's account with some of the questions. But let me just point out that a lot of it hinges on, on how we translate the text. And we read here that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now that's not the only way you can translate this, this sentence, verse 2 there. We could say this was before, this was before the registration of Quirinius. 
Instead of the first, this was prior to the registration of Quirinius. And that's an interesting thing. Because in Acts chapter 5, we know that there is a world famous registration of Quirinius. When Quirinius was governor, he had a census. And in Acts 5.37, Gamaliel in the Jewish council stands up and he says, After him, Judas the Galilean, also from Galilee, note, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So Luke knows about the census of Quirinius. And this was viewed by the Jewish people as a very oppressive census. And they rebelled. A rebellion came about by Judas, and many historians view this as the beginning, the origin of uh, the, the party in Judea of Zealots. Of course, you know, some of the followers of Christ are among this party of the Zealots, and the Zealots were literally revolutionaries who wanted to throw off Roman rule by military force. So there is no conflict whatsoever If Luke is merely saying, before that census that we all remember, because it was of such world historical significance, there was another one. And if that is what Luke is saying, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because in the Quirinius census, there's a guy named Judas who leads a rebellion and dies. He rebelled against the earthly oppression of Rome. But there's a contrast here, isn't there? Joseph and Mary, pious Jews... The taxation, the census, the registration is a tool used by the hands of a sovereign God, and they're obedient to it. Jesus, from the very first in the womb of his mother, is rendering unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Right? Jesus says, submit, give those things to the earthly magistrates who belong to them. And so Luke is portraying the birth of Christ in the context of humble obedience to the civil magistrate. And this will be one of the themes that he develops throughout Luke Acts. The Christian church is not an earthly power of rebellion throwing over the Roman Empire. Overthrowing, I should say. So this is very important. I think the bottom line here is we have no reason to doubt the history of Luke. It's been proven on many, many grounds to be extremely reliable. And in the last couple of hundred years, there have been a number of scholars who have set out to disprove Luke. And some of them have quite famously come over to the side of belief. For they found so much that was reliable and accurate in the pages of these two volumes. So this is a historical event. The second point is that Jesus is of the house and lineage of David. As Luke situates him in world history of Caesar Augustus, he also situates him in redemptive history. He is the Messiah, the Christ. The word Christ here is uh, the word for the anointed one. Luke does not quote Micah 5. Matthew does in his gospel. Luke is probably aware of Matthew and using Matthew as one of his sources. But Luke is making fundamentally the same point. Jesus is born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy we read this morning from Micah. That there is royal blood that flows through his veins. He is not only born of a woman, born under the law, as Paul says in Galatians. But he is descended from David according to the flesh, as Paul writes to the Romans. He is born in the city where the king of the Jews was prophesied to be born. So Luke agrees with Matthew that Bethlehem is the birthplace. And there is this wonderful irony of history that Caesar, 
Augustus, who claims to be the bringer of peace for the known world, right, is an instrument in God's hands. His act of registration, of taxation, is what takes Mary and Joseph to that city of David. And it's a reminder, brothers and sisters, and a great comfort to us today, that there are no no accidents of history. Those who would persecute the church in Jerusalem... In the early chapters of the book of Acts, for instance, scattered its believers across outside of Jerusalem. They flee persecution and death and stoning. And what do they do? They take the gospel. They become an instrument of God's plan for the church. And think of the apostle Paul, who Luke traveled with, right? He's thrown in prison and he appeals to Caesar because he submits to Caesar's law and he gets taken to Rome. And he's bound in chains as the book of Acts closed. But we read that the word of God was free. So Luke is here portraying for us this reality that the powers of this world are shaken to their core by the power of God who is nevertheless accomplishing his goal. This is a great comfort to us today that God allows his people to endure trials. It probably wasn't easy for Joseph and Mary to pick up, to go, to register. They were probably complaining. They were pious. They weren't perfect, right? We like to complain about taxes. And yet God was putting them where they had to be. And the third point in this factual background is equally profound. That three times Luke repeats the detail that the baby is wrapped up like an ordinary baby and laid in a manger. That's not so ordinary to lay your child in the feeding trough for an animal. Um, Even back in these days. This is because we read that there was no place for them in the inn. So they were uh, strangers, wandering, visitors. A manger, again, is just a feeding trough. And Jesus, though he was born in the city of David, not, not Jerusalem, not the city of where kings reside, but the historic city of David, Bethlehem, this small city, as Micah speaks of her, came in weakness, takes the form of a servant. And the angels draw our attention, the shepherd's attention. This will be a sign for you. You'll see a baby. That's a strange sign, right? But the sign is that he's laid in a manger. The sign of humiliation, not where you would expect him. And this becomes a marker of Christ's ministry, even as the prophets had foretold. Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the mighty God delivering us from Rome. Recall what we read today from Micah 5, right? It's this day of God's wrath and vengeance. And how is that wrath and vengeance coming? A little baby in a manger? Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. The sign that you're seeing the Lord and the king is that he won't look like a lord and a king. We esteemed him not. Luke is probably alluding to the opening of Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 1, where there's this image of Isaiah as a prophet coming to a sinful and rebellious people. And Isaiah describes, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God is the Father, and His children have been brought up in the house, and like the prodigal, they have gone astray. Then Isaiah writes, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib or its manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. 
Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So Jesus comes. And, uh, you know, my dog knows the sound of food being poured in the bowl. (laughs) Comes running. Dumb beasts know where they're fed. But Israel's sin is that they're rejecting their maker, their Lord, their master. And Jesus comes as Israel's Lord and master. And he's laid in the manger. He is their food. He is the bread of heaven. The fact of his birth is surprising, shocking. And it reflects a deep truth about his ministry and about the Christian faith. It comes in weakness. It goes forth in folly. And the power of the Lord Most High for the salvation of men is revealed Brothers and sisters, from this this opening movement, these opening seven verses, I want us to, to draw some comfort today that the facts of Christianity are true. The Lord of the universe, eternal God, became man. The world seeks its salvation in idols, in tricks, in inner strength, in meditation, looking within. We must look without to Jesus Christ. This is the scandal of the Christian faith. We preach Christ and him crucified. And every one of us, believers, unbelievers, must reckon ultimately with the baby laid in the manger. And we turn from that fact to what God says about it. And that's why the angels are sent. And this brings us to the second point, from great fear to great joy. Calvin, in his sermon on Luke chapter 2 Notes that the fact of the birth of Christ tells us nothing apart from the angelic announcement. Just the fact of a baby at a manger doesn't do anything for us. Furthermore, the message of Christ can only be received from the starting point of fear. And so we read, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over a flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. The way the Greek language emphasizes this is it says they feared a great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. Pretty simple exchange. For behold, there's a reason not to fear. I bring you, I preach good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not is the heart of the gospel message. Fear not. And it's not, don't worry, there's nothing to worry about. It's fear not because there's good news. Fear not because the answer, the problem of your fear has been relieved, has been destroyed. Without Christ, we should be very afraid. When we encounter the glory of the Lord, His truth, His holiness, it makes sense for us to throw ourselves down on the ground in terror. The angelic fear not is premised on the gospel. For I bring you good news of great joy the great fear of the shepherds is defeated destroyed by great joy the old story is replaced by a new story perhaps we've all taken this story for granted perhaps we've heard it too many times it's good to hear the story of christ's birth in february we can see perhaps more clearly what luke is doing here he's telling us through the angel's words the significance of this humble birth 
the profound world historical significance. Before we get to the source of this comfort, it's worth taking a moment to consider how it's delivered. The angels appear to shepherds out in the field. Dirty, lowly folks who live out of doors. People who live outside tend not to shower or bathe or be very clean. They weren't unemployed, but their task was a mean one. And yet, as we sang Psalm 23, as we saw even in Micah 5, right? The shepherd was also an image for the king. A good shepherd, a good king, was one who shepherded his people, who cared for them, who who led them to places of safety and protection, who fed them. And the Lord was not afraid to call himself the good shepherd, as we sang. He tends the flock. He lives among them. He protects them. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, as Jesus himself will say. And in Ephesians chapter 4, right, the ascended Christ gives to his church apostles and evangelists. And he gives them shepherds. It's what a pastor is. The first human preachers of the gospel, through the angelic word, are shepherds. They're pastors. It's not about their glory. It's not about their beauty. It's about the message that they bear. Churches that seek to prove the truth of their faith through worldly power and riches, through scale, through social and political influence, are missing the point. Look at our success doesn't really resonate from the ministry of Christ, who promises us only persecution in this world. Luke is writing a gospel that will encourage and sustain a minority church, a persecuted church in the Roman Empire. He is writing for a literate Greek and Roman audience that might uh, despise the origins of Christianity. To let them know that the king of all creation stoops and lowers himself to lie in a manger to commune with shepherds. And he entrusts his message to weak and foolish vessels. Paul talks about the fact that he did not speak with a beautiful voice. He came with a thorn in his flesh. And it's a humble word preached to water and bread and wine that bears this message to us. The glory in this passage, and there is glory in this passage, right? It's shining like a bright light. It's it's a heavenly host. It's a heavenly glory. Calvin tells us the host was required. We needed not just one angel, but thousands and thousands of angels because we're so dull. We need proof. And this brings us to our third and final point. The source of comfort is a savior born for you. You've sung it so many times, maybe take it for granted. The good news of great joy is this, a savior born unto you, unto us this day is born. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him unto us. How will he spare anything we need? Your rescuer, your redeemer has come. No matter your circumstances. Yes, you may, like the shepherds, still be under the boot of Rome. Instead of paying a temple tax in Jerusalem, as the Old Testament commanded, Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to sign up to send his money away. But David's greater son has been born, a source of great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angelic announcement presumes all the Old Testament promises, presumes that these poor shepherds know who David is. They know that there's a promised Messiah. And that there's a city of David. 
Even these humble shepherds make sense of this glorious birth only because they know the promises of God that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That David's greater son would rule on a throne forever. That the Lord himself would come and be a shepherd to his people. Bringing peace. Leading them to the promised land. And that their warfare has ended. That their scarlet sins would be washed white as snow. That by his stripes they would be healed. The force of this angelic announcement is that all our joy, all our peace, all our comfort is in Christ. In Christ. In the baby in a manger. Christ alone. He is our peace. He is our joy. His birth changes everything. Paul will write. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility. When we preach peace to those who are far off. And peace to those who are near. We are preaching Christ. And nothing else. Jude closes his epistle. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's the shepherds. They're in the presence of God's glory. And they now have great joy. And Jude tells us how. Because this child makes them blameless. The birth of Christ for you is good news of great joy. Because he has reconciled us to God. Because he in his flesh presents us blameless before the presence of God's glory. We can stand in the divine light, in the presence of the angelic host, with no fear, no doubt, no shame, and no sin. For he has borne it in his flesh on the cross. I mentioned in our prayer, a friend of Sarah and I's, a man named Rod Rosenblatt, who was a part of the White Horse Inn radio show, still a podcast that we used to work for. He was a great Lutheran minister, great professor of theology. And one of his great messages was that the blood of Christ, the gospel is for Christians. Here's a famous sermon that he preached. The gospel for Christians who've been hurt by the church. What an important message for us to hear. It's not just that you, you enter into the church by the, by the death of Christ and then you better, better behave or else. No, we come every week. The gospel of repentance for our sins. And it's the blood of Christ. Nothing else. That gives us comfort and peace. The angelic song. Has two parts. And they're in parallel with one another. Glory to God. In the highest places in heaven. Glory to God in heaven. And then. The second part. Peace. To man on earth. Glory to God in heaven, peace to man on earth. And the men who receive this peace are men who are pleasing to God. And upon earth, peace among those favored by God. This good pleasure, this uh, joy is God's good pleasure. It's God's grace with you. And in the language of the first century, this idea, men who please God, is, is shorthand for the elect. It's shorthand for those whom God has given everything to in his son. Those whom God is blessed, pleased to bless with his peace. And of course, sometimes in our popular singing at Christmas time, peace on earth to men of goodwill makes it out like men have to be willing the right thing to get in God's good graces. That's not the meaning of this phrase at all. 
It's God's good pleasure. As Paul teaches in Ephesians, and again, Luke was probably familiar with Paul's preaching on this point. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. It's the same term. God's good pleasure, his grace towards us, his mercy. And four verses later, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, his good pleasure for us, which he set forth in Christ. God made his good pleasure toward you known in Christ. In closing, notice how Luke shows us the shepherds responded. They go with haste. They encourage one another. Let us go see this thing, right? They've, they've heard the word, but they speak it to one another. They, they reiterate it and they trust the word of the Lord. Let us go see this thing which the Lord has made known to us. That means that they, in the angel, saw an instrument of God himself speaking in their presence. They took the messenger's word as the Lord's word. And they bore witness to the saying that had been told him. All who heard what they said wondered. They told many people. And Mary, we read, treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. They weren't entirely clear to her what this meant. There was a certain mystery. It wasn't for Mary to know how her son would bring great joy. How he would bring peace for all people. But this testimony of the shepherds became part of the gospel witness of Luke and of the church to this day. She was left to ponder and to treasure. Perhaps, probably, she's the source of this account. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. As it had been told them. John Calvin in his sermon says. What what a change for the shepherds. They're still shepherds. They, They still live the same life. They had no material blessing. But they had praising and rejoicing. Glorifying God. Why? Because of Christ. The joy and peace that Christ brings is not a joy that manifests itself always or ever necessarily in outward blessing. What does the apostle say? We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The angels lift the shepherd's eyes through Christ up to this heavenly glory to God, this eternal blessing, this weight of glory. And that's our blessing today. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for this great gift, which was given to those with whom you were well pleased That you set upon men and women this blessing. That you have given us peace with God and peace with one another. That you have given us the ministry of reconciliation. That we could be united with you and united with fellow sinners here on earth. Through confession and forgiveness of our sins. Lord we pray that you would send forth your spirit. That we would go forth as the shepherds this day. Faithfully bearing witness. Rejoicing and glorifying God. And we would treasure these things in our hearts and that our lives would be a manifestation of your grace and mercy in our midst.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.